Welcome to the LDN Radio Show, brought to you by the LDN Research Trust. I'm your host, Linda Elsigood. I have an exciting lineup of guest speakers who are LDN experts in their field. We will be discussing low-dose naltrexone and its many uses in autoimmune diseases, cancers, etc. Thank you for joining us. Hello, I'm Dr. Deanna Windham. I um, am also giving the lecture on lupus, and so some of the things that we're going to talk about in this slide are things that are more explored on the lupus lecture, so that might be worth watching as well. I am an integrative practitioner. I've been specializing in neurologic and immunologic disease processes for the last 15 years and using integrative therapies to treat them. So today we're talking about bipolar disorder, and I my hope is that when we're done, if you're somebody that has bipolar or who's impacted by a person with bipolar in your life, that you will feel empowered to explore things that can help you stabilize this very um, damaging disease process and that if you're a practitioner that this will empower you to explore avenues of diagnosis and treatment for people with bipolar disorder that will help them to live more productive lives. So there is a huge impact of bipolar disorder. In the world, there are about 2.4% of people that have bipolar disorder. But in the United States, our rates are almost twice that high at 4.4%. As we explore some of the factors that worsen or cause bipolar disorder, I hope it becomes clear as to why that is. The impact on society is that less than 30% of bipolar people can live independently. Um, a lot of them are living in supervised housing, living with parents or other family members, um, are incarcerated either willingly or unwillingly, and um, up to 10% uh, are living uh, in homeless shelters or hospitals. But the impact on a person's life can be devastating. The Bipolar, how it exhibits in a person's life, it can be so hard on relationships. People with bipolar disorder have higher rates of divorce, of job loss, higher rates of suicide, higher rates of voluntary and involuntary incarceration, and higher rates of social isolation. I've had bipolar patients whose family members or kids won't talk to them. And... So this can be very impactful in a person's life. It is hard to live or work with a bipolar person. So if you've ever known a bipolar person or lived with one, you know how challenging this um, relationship can be. And bipolar parents perpetuate bipolar offspring. So there wasn't, there's always been an argument in psychiatry about nature versus nurture and no less so in bipolar disorder. But now we know that both are impactful in human lives. So we do inherit the risk for bipolar, but our society, our immediate society that we live in, 
also can increase or decrease the risk of developing bipolar disorder. So bipolar disorder obviously deserves some explanation of what it is. By, there are two main types of bipolar disorder that are categorized by the DSM-5. Uh, bipolar 1 is less severe, if you will, with one manic episode or mixed manic and depressive episodes per year. Bipolar 2 is a more severe form of bipolar disorder in which uh, the patient has both major depressive episodes and manic or hypomanic episodes. And then bipolar-related disorders are like rapidly cycling bipolar disorder, bipolar disorder with psychotic features, um, hallucinations, delusions, neuroses. So these are aspects of bipolar disorder that aren't there in every person's bipolar life but can be. And then the cognitive symptoms are things that we're going to talk about a little bit more on the next slide. But there's something that I want you to understand about this DSM-5. This is our current diagnostic criteria of how we bi diagnose bipolar disorder, but this is a consensus-based criteria. What that means is that specialists got together, um, leaders in their field, and agreed upon the behaviors that we would define as bipolar. That's important as to how we arrive at the diagnosis because more and more people who work in the psychiatric field are beginning to feel the need of some specific evaluation process that's done for each patient on an individual basis and has more of an objective criteria. So in research, we can see that there are some diagnostic criteria that help us define better bipolar disease. So this is um, SPECT scans of the brain and functional MRIs and qualitative EEGs. Of the three, a qualitative EEG is the easiest to do in office and easiest to get covered by insurance and often is a part of neurofeedback therapy. In these things, we can see these cognitive and functional changes of the brain that are associated with bipolar disorder. These brain structural changes or alterations that we see in these studies are a part of bipolar disease and varying variations in bipolar disease look different. So bipolar 1, bipolar 2, bipolar with psychotic features, an active manic episode versus a depressive episode. We can see the differences on these imaging studies that take into account the functionality of the brain. So bipolar disorder is a structural alteration of how the brain is working. Most people with bipolar disorder do have cognitive deficits. So returning to slide four, for just a moment, we see in the bottom right-hand corner the cognitive symptoms associated with bipolar disorder. So racing thoughts, distractibility, disorganization, and inattentiveness are things that are common in people with bipolar disorder even when they're not in a manic or depressive state. Returning to slide five, 
oxidative stress imbalance is one of the physiologic disease processes of bipolar disorder. So oxidative stress is basically wear and tear at a cellular level from just living, eating, breathing, sleeping, moving, all the things we do in a day produce oxidative stress. People that have bipolar disorder can't remove all of the oxidative damage that we're exposed to on a daily basis, and this builds up. There is a dysfunction in amyloid metabolism in the brain in people with bipolar disorder. Now, this is newer information, and research is still determining what this means and how we should be treating it. People with bipolar disorder have an immunologic dysregulation. So the immune system is not behaving normally in a person with bipolar disorder. Even though we think of bipolar as mainly impacting the brain, the immune system is definitely part of this interaction. And immunosenescence means that the cells die earlier than they should. So people with bipolar disorder literally have cellular die-off um, that is more significant. Um, neurotrophic deficiencies have been found in people with bipolar disorder. So that means that the factors um, in our body that nourish the neurons and help them to grow are deficient in people with bipolar disorder. And then there's telomere shortening in people with bipolar disorder. So the telomeres are the ends of your DNA strands, often, um, often are represented as being a lot like the ends of your shoestrings. So it keeps your shoestrings from unraveling. The telomeres keep your DNA from unraveling. And as we age, those telomeres shorten. And this is one of the current theories of why humans age is because our telomeres shorten. So some of these pathological disease processes of bipolar disease um, have led researchers into exploring different aspects. Um, two of the um, current research studies that are um, evaluating what causes bipolar disorder and what this process is. Um, accelerated aging is one of the theorized, um, uh, the theories of what bipolar disorder is, or is bipolar disorder an autoimmune disease? There's a lot of promise in the research to indicate that bipolar disorder may be autoimmune. I myself if I see somebody with bipolar disorder, I always test them for autoimmune markers. I have had several patients, but especially one very notable patient that was diagnosed with bipolar disorder, and the reason it was so notable is because he was in a court case and was going to lose his children because of the bipolar diagnosis. He actually had medication-induced lupus. Once we treated the medication-induced lupus, he no longer had bipolar disorder. So he came off of all four of his bipolar medications and is now stable both with the lupus and with the bipolar disorder without any uh, bipolar medications. 
So his brain health and moods stabilized when we treated lupus, hence the importance of the research in that area and also for looking for these aspects that may be contributory. Stem cell abnormalities in bipolar disorder has been recently confirmed in the research. So we know, like autoimmune disease, people with bipolar disorder have um, dysfunctions in their, immune, in their stem cells. Bipolar disorder is an epigenetic disease. So people with bipolar disorder are born with the risk that's in their genes, and something that they are exposed to in their lives turns this risk on and they become bipolar. So most people are not born bipolar but become bipolar just like any other disease process. You're not born with it most of the time. Um, and there's something in your life that exposes you and increases or increases the risk of or causes the disease process to start. And this is true of bipolar disease as well. And I went over epigenetics a little bit more in the lupus lecture. And then uh, social and childhood trauma um, actually is known to be impactful in the development of bipolar disease. So these are things that I want to make sure we're not losing sight of kind of the basics of bipolar disorder and the treatments that people need in order to deal with these things in their lives. There are actually many uh, known, so the last two slides have discussed the physiologic process of the disease of bipolar disorder and some of the theories being explored. This slide, slide seven, is reviewing the contributory factors. What are the things that cause these processes that we've been talking about in the last few slides, what are the things that activate them? So the things that we are exposed to that create these cellular imbalances leading to the pathophysiologic processes. So if you're a patient or a practitioner, these are the things that I would like to highlight as areas of investigation for each person with bipolar disorder. So infectious agents, that's any type of pathogen, virus, bacteria, chronic infections, reactivated infections are things that can um, start or trigger or one of the triggers for the process of bipolar disorder. Hormone or endocrine imbalances can contribute and need to be evaluated. Nutritional deficiencies um, need to be evaluated, and I usually do, do that, and all of this with specialized testing. Food sensitivities, especially uh, gluten, casein, we're talking about that more in some of the other lectures, but these are things that should be explored. Uh, gut and microbiome health are known to be impactful in the development of autoimmune disease um, in that when the microbiome is not healthy and the enterocytes, which are the cells of the gut lining, are not healthy, it can hyperactivate an immune response 
that leads to autoimmune disease and bipolar disease. And you can see in um, this one snippet from uh, research published in the Journal of Psychiatry that the gut microbiome um, has a strong impact on the development of bipolar disorder. And then there are lifestyle factors that need to be addressed with each patient. So sleep is one of those factors. Most people with bipolar disorder are not sleeping well or not sleeping consistently or not on a regular schedule. So sleep uh, is something that has to be evaluated for each patient, and this has to be one of the things that we treat effectively in order to stabilize bipolar disorder. Your brain goes into deep rest when you are in deep sleep, and your immune system repairs and regenerates when you're in deep sleep. People that aren't getting enough deep sleep have higher rates of both immune and neurologic diseases. So it's imperative to evaluate this um, for its impact in development of bi and maintenance of bipolar disorder. And I like to have a very high level of suspicion of sleep apnea or sleep hypopnea. I tried not to be redundant, so again, I haven't addressed that in this lecture, but it was addressed in the lupus lecture. But the, the factors that should make you suspicious of sleep apnea or hypopnea are high blood pressure requiring more than two medications or poorly controlled high blood pressure, intermittent atrial fibrillation or frequent PVCs or premature ventricular contractions, um, waking up multiple times a night even if it's to urinate, uh, daytime fatigue, and um, mood disorders, so depression, anxiety, especially if they're new onset. Um, so new onset of mood disorders should make you very suspicious. I've had some patients that postmenopausally have symptoms of severe depression, anxiety, panic attacks, and many of them benefit from bioidentical hormones. However, in a couple notable cases, those patients didn't have a primary hormone imbalance causing their symptoms, but instead had sleep apnea that had been exacerbated by a hormone imbalance. So in those patients, I've had to treat the sleep apnea in order to treat their primarily what looked like hormonal symptoms. Um, in this, I've had this happen um, half a dozen times or less in my career, but um, in the people in whom it has happened, none of them have had the typical symptoms of sleep apnea. So they weren't overweight, weren't snoring loudly, um, weren't falling asleep driving a car. So in all of these instances, uh, sleep apnea was not something that was picked up on typical testing. The other impactful uh, contributory factor in lifestyle is diet. How a person is eating is of primary importance. So gluten, sugar, um, food.
foods that aren't really foods, additives, chemicals, preservatives, all of these things have a negative impact on the microbiome, the immune system, and the brain. So cleaning up the diet is very important in bipolar disorder, and, and as is stress management. If you've been around a bipolar person, you know that stress can trigger uh, an episode of mania or depression or some of the other moodiness or cognitive factors associated with bipolar disorder. So how a person manages stress is paramount. And for this, they need a counselor, they need a group, they need therapy to help them to deal with uh, stress in a more positive fashion. And exercise um, can be important as well and usually is. So the previous slide is about um, all of the things that we know from research to be impactful in bipolar disorder. Um, this slide about diagnosing correctly is the things that can mimic or look like bipolar disorder and when treated, the bipolar symptoms can resolve. So traumatic brain injuries uh, are something that is something that's tied to the development of bipolar symptoms. We're seeing this a lot in our returning vets, is uh, bipolar disorder, um, post-traumatic stress syndrome, um, severe depression and anxiety, these, these moods or mood disorders that we're seeing in our returning vets with uh, TBI and PTSD are things that um, are a result of the damage to their brains, and if we treat the damage that's been caused, it actually helps to resolve the mood imbalances. Um, autoimmune diseases, as I said earlier, can mimic bipolar disorder. So I'm, it's important to look for autoimmune diseases. Microbiome or other gut imbalances, uh, including food sensitivities or things that need to be evaluated and treated. Don't forget medication reactions as one of the triggers of lupus. And so look for any medications that might be triggering the, uh, sorry, um, medication reactions can trigger bipolar symptoms. So make sure that you're looking at medications as um, a potential uh, factor here. And then endocrine imbalances, so hormones imbalances, if significant enough, can mimic the moods of bipolar disorder. So these are the things that you that are core and can mimic bipolar, can cause bipolar symptoms um, that are consistent with the DSM-5, but they do look different on a functional MRI or on a qualitative EEG. So these are things that whether or not we call it bipolar or just bipolar symptoms, these are things that can be highly impactful in treating them to stabilize the bipolar disorder. And in some of my patients, it has actually, um, the bipolar disorder has actually resolved when we treated these other things. Some of the causative factors, these are things that research um, and science recognize as some of the primary factors 
that start off the pathophysiologic process of bipolar disorder. So what's happening behind the scenes? So this is uh, for you clinicians who are wondering, how do we get from A to Z? So the things, the primary processes that are happening are, is a mitochondrial dysfunction, stem cell dysfunctions, epigenetic changes, leaky gut and leaky blood-brain barrier, and an increase in oxidative damage that can't be repaired. So these are the like, stage one or step one, if you will, in the development of bipolar disorder. Um, having said that, we're going to move on to other uh, scientific uh, treatments, but I want to be sure that we don't forget the basics as we start talking about these other things in that there is a significant contribution of, <clears throat> of social impact for people with bipolar disorder. So we know that um, kids that grow up in a bipolar home have higher rates of bipolar disorder. And current relationships can maintain detrimental cycles or patterns that uh, enhance or maintain the bipolar disorder. So make sure, first of all, as we're starting off with everything, make sure that patients are in counseling, that they're in therapy, that they're in groups, that they're stabilizing medications and not making changes to their medications um, without a doctor's uh, input. So you want to make sure that these social contributing factors are, as much as possible, being treated. So moving on to the, um, the things that we can do and the power that the human body has to modify the process of, that we call bipolar disorder. So neuroplasticity is the key to personal empowerment in relation to bipolar disorder. So about 90% of the information in the next several slides is coming from NICABM um, handout that you can get online and, and keep for yourself or show to patients. I like to use this a lot for patients because a lot of people don't understand neuroplasticity. Neuroplasticity basically means the ability of the brain to change structure and function. Now, this means that your brain can form new nerve connections. It can build new synapses by practicing new skills, and it can strengthen neurons with practice. We can weaken neurons we don't want to be present, like neurons that are having a, a symptoms of depression, so we can weaken those with disuse. So our brain's neuroplasticity is the key to being able to treat bipolar disorder. From a scientific point of view, neuroplasticity is a, is a potential that happens at the level of the dendritic spines as properties of membrane and ion channels, hormonal activity directly impacts neuroplasticity. The 
uh, impact of the glymphatic system, that is the microglia in the brain, and how uh, effective they are at doing their job. Um, neuroplasticity is changed by DNA regulation and transcriptions and by neurotransmitter status of the brain. Now, remembering that the microbiome or the gut makes 80% of the neurotransmitters for the brain is really important here because this is one of the, <clears throat> excuse me, this is one of the primary ways in which the gut impacts the brain. So when your gut is healthier, you have healthier neurotransmitters in your brain and better ability to enhance neuroplasticity or the formation of new nerves. So the things that we do in our lives have an impact on our neuroplasticity. So they have an impact on that science side of it. Traumatic events, which none of us want or seek out, are one of the things that, um, that impacts neuroplasticity negatively in that it forms negative or, or uh, unhelpful nerve connections. Um, how we deal with stress changes our neuroplasticity. So this is something that can be learned. And as a matter of fact, from except for traumatic events, all of the other factors on this slide which are known to have an impact in neuroplasticity are things that we ourselves can do. So we can learn how to deal better with stress. We can learn to have healthier social interactions. We can be stable with our medications. We can learn healthier ways of identifying and expressing our emotions. We can learn to get better sleep, and we can do things that have a positive impact on sleep. What we pay attention to and um, our ability to learn have a dramatic Im impact on neuroplasticity. New experiences, if we have positive experiences, they reinforce positive patterns in the brain. And diet and exercise are impactful. So these are all things that we can do on a daily basis that have a positive impact on our brain's ability to repair, regenerate, and have a healthier brain process. So if we take all of these aspects of what's happening with neuroplasticity, um, there can be a good side and a bad side. So the bad side, if you will, of neuroplasticity is that the brain is constantly learning, but it doesn't know the difference between good and bad. So our brain learns whatever is repeated. If you repeat negative thought patterns, harmful ways of communicating, detrimental interactions with others, and ruminating negative thoughts, then what will happen is that that will entrench patterns of depression, anxiety, obsessive and overreactive behaviors, and bipolar patterns. So there is a flip side to this coin, which is the good side or the bright side of neuroplasticity. Our brains can also be trained to do something different than what they're doing now. Neuroplasticity means that your brain is resilient. 
your brain can recover from traumatic brain injuries, strokes, traumas, and your brain can learn new ways of thinking, being, and responding to the world around you and to the people within it. Neuroplasticity means that we can overcome depression, anxiety, bipolar patterns, ADD, and all of the things that we think of as dysfunctional or um, damaging brain patterns that inhibit us in our lives. So positive actions and affirmations can replace entrenched negative patterns. It doesn't matter your age. Research has shown that even into our 90s, we can make positive changes that increase neuroplasticity in the brain and help us to change. Low-dose naltrexone plays a part in bipolar disorder. That's fairly important. So when I put somebody on low-dose naltrexone, first of all, let's talk about what the patient notices or what we see on a clinical level with people who start on low-dose naltrexone. So what I often see is that patients stabilize their medications. We're able to keep them on stable dosages. They don't have to go up and down as much. There's a better patient compliance to medications, and very often the medications are working better, so we're able to decrease their dosages of some medications. Medication changes should always be done with a doctor helping you. Most patients that take LDN have improved sleep over the long term. Short-term, low-dose naltrexone, yes, can have a negative impact on sleep, but if tapered up appropriately, um, this is usually nullified, and improved sleep is one of the things that is fairly consistently reported. People um, that have bipolar disorder usually have stabilization or often have stabilization of their hormones while taking low-dose naltrexone, and remember that hormone imbalances are one of the things that both trigger bipolar disorder and have an impact on neuroplasticity, so the brain's ability to repair. So stabilizing hormones is a uh, dramatic positive way that low-dose naltrexone helps to stabilize bipolar disorder. Most people with bipolar disorder notice an improvement in their moods when they're on low-dose naltrexone, hence the reason that we're able to stabilize and decrease medications because their symptoms are improving. If they're experiencing dissociative symptoms, um, psychotic or neurotic features, um, it can help specifically with those things, although it does have to be given in the morning and not at night. And then... Low-dose naltrexone helps with these complex interactions of the triggers and the causative factors that we've been discussing in this um, lecture. So it helps on, uh, with many of the steps of uh, bipolar triggering and bipolar disease induction and uh, maintenance of bipolar disorder. So it stabilizes a lot of those factors. The science behind how LDN has that impact in bipolar disorder is that uh, LDN has been shown to decrease oxidative stress, 
remember this is one of the primary or first steps that sets off the bipolar disorder. LDN improves the ability to heal, repair, and regenerate. So um, it's, it, it improves the leaky gut and leaky blood-brain barrier and helps to enhance and improve the nerve connections. LDN actually increases neurogenesis. That's the formation of new nerves. It stabilizes the immune system. So there, in my lupus lecture, we talked more about that, and there's more information about the immune system in many of the lectures uh, over the weekend of the uh, LDN uh, Research Trust Conference. And there's more information in the LDN book as well. But suffice it to say that LDN in many ways stabilizes the immune system and the immune system as it interacts with the brain. It also stabilizes the endocrine system or the hormones, which are one of the primarily impactful um, stages of development of bipolar disorder. And through uh, all of these impacts almost certainly has a positive impact on neuroplasticity, so helping the brain to repair itself and reroute to healthier interaction and healthier uh, functioning. So dosing for uh, mental health treatment uh, was very well explained by Dr. Galen Forster at the LDN Research Trust Lecture February of 2016. And uh, dosing for mental health issues um, is 0.06 milligrams per kilogram of body weight. And I've been following um, these dosing recommendations with good success over the years. Um, this should be administered, unlike other um, LDN dosing for mental health, very often I'm, and more so I'm finding myself dosing in the morning instead of at night. If you give LDN at night, very often it can cause um, dreams, uh, nightmares, and an increase in dissociative feelings and behaviors, and as I've done qualitative EEG on the most severe of my bipolar patients, we see a lot of excess delta waves in the brain. Delta waves are basically dream sleep. So if a person's having dream sleep during the day, you can see how this would be damaging or dream sleep type of brain waves during the day. So we give low-dose naltrexone in the morning so that we're not enhancing that dysfunctional uh, brain structure that can be associated with the bipolar disorder. Um, for patients that are stable on their medications, uh, they're not rapidly cycling, don't have psychotic features, um, fairly mild, basically just wanting to stabilize or get off of medications, I usually start them fairly quickly at a half dosage for a week and then a full dosage after that. Most people can tolerate that fairly well if they're already stable. For most of the patients who come and see me for bipolar disorder, they're not stable. That's the reason they're coming to see me. So they've, the bipolar disorder has gotten worse over the years, 
or they're on multiple medications and still rapidly cycling. They have psychotic features. Um, their cognitive um, functions are declining even further, and they're unable to work. So for these people, I start much slower with low-dose naltrexone. I usually start on a quarter dosage, whatever their dosage has been determined um, in calculating with their body weight. So we started a quarter dosage and increase by a quarter dosage every one to two weeks. If a patient is very sensitive to other medications or supplements, I increase every two weeks. If they haven't shown a lot of sensitivities to other medications or supplements, then I increase every one week. Um, so moving now past the low-dose naltrexone, um, we've talked about all of the uh, the, the pathophysiologic processes, the things that we can explore that are contributory factors or triggers, um, treatment with low-dose naltrexone and how neuroplasticity helps us. If you're doing all of these things already, which some people that I see are because they have a, pra a very a well-informed practitioner helping them, um, there are other things that you might want to explore and have been shown to be helpful in research and or in um, objective reports from patients. But all of the things on this slide have been shown to be helpful in research, um, although not enough, uh, often not enough to be able to make a scientific claim. But neurofeedback therapy, therapy with oxytocin, we, you may need to look at neurotransmitter balance, amino acid balance, Growth factors are something that can really enhance neuroplasticity and help the brain to heal faster. IV ketamine is something that can stop the dissociative um, and very severe symptoms and can significantly help people who have been treatment resistant and also increases growth factors. Peptides are coming out in the research as something that's we're probably going to have moving into the future to be able to help bipolar people. And stem cell therapy that is not your own uh, is also coming out as a very powerful um, immune modulator and something that helps to stimulate neuroplasticity, neurogenesis, and enhances the brain's ability to establish positive uh, nerve connections but not your own. Remember, people that have bipolar disorder have dysfunctional stem cells, so getting your own stem cells back is not that helpful. So successful treatment of bipolar disorder means looking at all of these triggers, all of these factors, and bringing that together for a unique treatment protocol for each patient. And it is the patient that has to work the hardest here. And I am sorry to say that because bipolar disorder is hard on people. So then saying, I need you to work even harder to get it under control can be hard on, can be very difficult for some people to hear. But this is where I bring out my neuroplasticity um, slide or my neuroplasticity um, handout and give it to them to show them that they have the power to change their brain and how it functions. 
if they are not dedicated to these changes, if they're not going to be stable to work on lifestyle, to implement a, a stable um, positive protocol and be consistent with the plan, these things are required. So, of course, the uh, bipolar person has to be the person working hardest at getting better. So you have to be consistent. You have to have positive reinforcement to work on those social interactions. Um, stay on your medications, stay in counseling, and explore effective diagnosis and treatment of all of these factors we've been talking about. Use your neuroplasticity for good. So your neuroplasticity is your superhuman power. We have this power to impact our patients, to impact ourselves, and to impact the people around us. Because if we do things that enhance our neuroplasticity, very often the people around us will start doing things like that too. Remember that people have bipolar disorder, but they are not bipolar. The illness is part of who a person is, but it does not define you. It does not define a patient. Make sure that you're looking at all of your causes, all of your contributing factors, and make sure that you are looking for positive ways to treat it. I'm sorry I didn't attach the last slide to this, um, but again, I'm Dr. Deanna Windham. I hope that this has been helpful to you, and please feel free to contact me at my uh, email Dr. Windham at iCloud.com. Doctor is spelled out D O C T O R, Windham, W I N D H A M, at iCloud.com. And here's to your uh, health and wellness. Have a great day. Any questions or comments you may have, please email me, Linda, L I N D A at ldnrt.org. I look forward to hearing from you. Thank you for joining us today. We really appreciated your company. Until next time, stay safe and keep well.